we'll laugh about it later. What's going on over there? <laughs> crack myself up. All right. Okay. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We use science to, to prolong life. Stick your hand all the way in. It's too hot. But it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively? It'll be up to you. And you too. So I was talking to Nick about our opening jokes. Oh, okay. And, and it seems like over Zoom over this last two years, I don't get a lot of laughs. But in person, I get I get a lot more. And I was asking him about it. And uh, he just said, well, I, I think that... Uh-oh. He said, I don't think... <laughs> he said, I don't think... That your jokes are remotely funny. Dang, well, how did that? I don't, that turned around on me. I don't. I, I was all expected to not not like that. Oh, it's so good to have the little stand back for my uh, stream deck here, so I can do all of the things again. Oh, how I've missed it so. <laughs> Oh, the Wilhelm scream. The Wilhelm scream. We are basking. We are in person and we are basking in front of a, a little campfire that you have out on the table. Yeah. And it is burning. It's it's a concrete vessel that you that you handcrafted and you pour isopropyl what is that? Isopropyl alcohol in there? Yeah. Uh in the middle and then light that. And I was noticing I went to <laughs> Of course when I see fire, I immediately <laughs> think, put my hands in it. So I put my hand in it. <laughs> For an astonishingly long time, because the flame is not very hot at all. And then it got to be like, oh, weird, I guess flames, I know, burn at different temperatures, but usually you associate that with color, whether it's blue or orange or white or, um, and then so I asked you, well, Mark, what is the coldest fire? (laughs) And neither of us knew. So now I have the answer to what is the coldest fire? What's the coldest Um, fire? Well, Breaking down a lot of the mansplaining answers I found on Reddit of, well, actually, um, is kind of the one we have going with isopropyl alcohol is about 400 degrees Celsius, which is about 750 Fahrenheit. So um, what does wood burn at? I wonder. Well, according to Ray Bradbury's 451. Oh, well, then I guess that would be that would be less than isopropyl alcohol. But that would be the ignition point and yeah. not necessarily the burning temperature. Yeah. So. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Anyway. Well, so there's, there's an unsatisfactory answer that just Neat. led to more questions. <laughs> and so here's another one of those. So I found a nine volt battery at my house and to test it, to see if it's still good. You know, you stick it on your tongue. Right. Why does, I understand why that sends a little shock back and forth. Why? I sort of understand that, but, why doesn't it do it like if you get your arm wet and then put it on the wet part of your arm? Like what's going on? It does. Oh. Uh, and so <laughs> it's just. Uh, the... I just have full body. <laughs> I have paralysis and that's how I found out. Uh, <laughs> and also makes it so you can't move the left side of your body. So if you get your skin wet and put the battery against it, it has the same function um, you have more, uh, usually like, unless you have like salt water on your skin, it won't be as conductive, okay. uh, as your saliva has a lot of electrolytes in it. And okay. so, so I should lick more it conductive. instead of get it wet. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the sensitivity of your tongue what? is like, He's gay. He's gay. Excuse me. He's blind. Did you see the tuba player guy? Thing? Yes. I saved that on my desktop because you had sent me that before. Some guy on TikTok. And when it says, but he's gay, he's all, all of a sudden wearing like on his short, short pants or something like that. pants ever. But he's gay. No, he, he's gay. But he also is interested in classical music. I'm like, those are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> But you'd be surprised. But he's into music. He's into uh, music. Uh, anyway, um, I don't remember what we were talking about. The, saliva being saliva. more conductive. And so, 
uh, your tongue is like 10,000 times more sensitive than okay, sure. your skin. So you'd want to so, do it maybe on the back of your hand with saliva would be the best. <laughs> right. Or like the, the, but he's gay. I mean, he's gay. <laughs> I need to excerpt that and make that a little louder. Okay. Well, that's enough of my stupid questions, I think. I'll stay right down. Ooh, I saw um, a a YouTube video of somebody testing helium beer okay. where it's carbonated, oh, yeah, quote yeah. unquote, with helium. helium. So when oh, you drink yeah. it, it makes your voice all high. And I was like, oh, you, uh. you, you and Brian will have to try that sometime yeah. as I watch. Although <laughs> you would probably get helium cola, I wonder, too. But <laughs> For sure. That would be fun. Well, last week we talked a little bit about, um, or last week, the last episode, a theory versus a law and both of us kind of got oh, yeah. uh, stymied a little bit. So I pulled up an excl- explanation that you'll probably still have to walk me through, but basically um, a scientific theory that is a, dis- a description of the natural world that scientists have proven through rigorous testing uh, as understood in the scientific community. A theory explains how nature behaves under specific conditions. Theories okay. tend to be broad, uh, tend to be broad, uh, so they begin as a hypothesis, blah, 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 and then they test it and test it and test it. So four examples of theory are the Big Bang Theory, the heliocentric theory. And I wonder if that was just a theory before we were able to prove that. <laughs> right. Um, the theory of general relativity, uh, the theory of evolution by natural selection. Um, but then laws are... Let's see where, like theory, scientific laws describe phenomena that the scientific community has found to be provably true. Generally, laws describe what will happen in a given situation as uh, demonstrable by a mathematical equation, whereas theories describe how the phenomenon happens. Uh, scientific laws developed from scientific discoveries and rigorous tests. Uh, it all boils down to. Um, Scientific law, let's see, both scientific laws and theories are considered scientific fact. So it's, we don't use theory in the same way. Kind of, we don't use like, well, one thing that bothers me about um, critical race theory is that in layman's parlance, critical means you are out to get it or you are out to prove something. Whereas in an academic setting, it just means like a rigorous discussion and Mm. look into um this theory so anyway that didn't seem to clear things up too much for me but there, there you go hopefully someone was, someone will be able to la- later yeah. go back and listen to this and maybe it's cut that into parse something it, parse that, it for uh, us. <laughs> yeah that is that is interesting um anyway well anything else before we begin the news no did you share a news document with me oh i did not here let me do that in real time i'll play this as we do that Dun. So good to have that Mac again. Okay, I just sent that to you. I sent that to you. We still have 14 seconds left on this soundbite. It starts to sound very I Love Lucy after a while. Yeah. All right, listen for that. And his orchestra. And Desi's orchestra. Well, there is a lot going on in the world right now. Um, But one thing can make us feel better and help us sleep tonight mark and that is right now the white house is briefing tiktok stars about the war in ukraine there was a fantastic snl skit about that last night oh really so the cold open was the president briefing tiktok stars I'm going to have to go watch it's, that. It's pretty great. Well, 30 top TikTok stars gathered on a Zoom call to receive key information about the war unfolding in Ukraine. National Security Council staffers and White House uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki briefed influencers about the U.S. strategic goals in the region and answered questions. Um the White House has been closely watching TikTok's rise as a dominant news source, leading to its decision to approach a select group of the platform's most influential names. Uh, the invitations were, the invitations to the event were distributed, uh, and Kahil Green, 21, a creator with more than 534,000 followers, 
which does not seem like a top 30 creator, right. um, said he wasn't surprised when an invitation arrived in his email box. <laughs> Less surprised than I am, I guess. <laughs> people in my generation get all our information from TikTok, he said. I imagine all of these people standing with their feet planted and doing some sort of arm dance as they're saying all these things. So just keep that in your mind when they all talk. You you will love the skit. Okay, uh, let, let me just say that SNL nailed exactly what you're talking about. Oh, perfect. So. Perfect. Um, so Jules Terpek, a Gen Z content creator who makes TikTok essays about digital culture, said the White House decision to engage cre- uh, creators as she as such as she was essential in helping stop the spread of misinformation is kind of what they're going after. Um, after the call, several influencers said they felt more empowered to debunk misinformation and communicate effectively about the crisis. TikTok has been overrun with false and misleading news since the war broke out. And they said TikTok would finally be able to lay labeling state controlled media on its platform. Um, Ellie Zeiler, an 18-year-old TikTok star with more than 10.5 million followers, well, see, that makes more sense, said, I'm here to relay the information in a more digestible manner to my followers. I would consider myself a White House correspondent for Gen Z. Perfect. So, there we go. It is interesting to think that the state is consulting media stars on how to not be state mouthpieces of information. uh, Yeah. It's, because isn't Putin doing like literally the exact same thing, meeting with top TikTok stars yeah. in Russia, telling them, quote, how to get rid of misinformation? Yeah. And there's um, there's uh, compilations of showing that they're all reading from the same script. Oh, uh, I saw that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's very Sinclair broadcasting. Right, exactly. Um, well, a sad follow-up. Yeah. Um, the U.S. man who got the first pig heart transplant died after two months. David Bennett, who was 57, died Tuesday at the University of Maryland. Doctors didn't give an exact cause of death, saying only that his condition had begun deteriorating several days earlier. Um, so he was a certain a certain death without the transplant right. um, and was willing to take this risk because he wasn't able to be on the list for um, a regular transplant. So... Uh, he he took one for the team, and it sounds like even though it ended not as great as we were hoping, uh, it was the first time someone was actually to live for that long. So kudos to you, David Bennett, uh, in helping us further fake pig <laughs> organs that we will be shoving into our bodies in the future. <clears throat> Do you want to read one? Sure. Uh, San Francisco's brand new floating fire station opens. And so the mayor of San Francisco, uh, London breed London is the breed. mayor of San Francisco. <laughs> He's a TikTok mayor star. London and, breed, San Francisco public and works. Tom of Finland model. <laughs> London Seriously. breed, uh, celebrated the completion of San Francisco's new floating fireboat station. Number 35, an innovative project that meets the present-day needs of maritime-based operations for first responders. As the city's newest fire station and the only one located directly on the waterfront, Hmm. the facility is built to remain functional during and after a major earthquake and will adapt to projected sea level rise. Jeez, what a weird thing to have to figure in the future. Yeah, I mean, after the... um, the wharf, you know, big section of the wharf burnt down oh, right. uh, a couple of years ago. I'm sure that that would, you know, that played into the conversation at least yeah. for for planning this. Yeah, yeah. wow. Uh, Two story, almost fifteen thousand square foot structure is built on top of a hundred and seventy three foot long steel float and anchored by four guide piles. The design allows the structure to rise and fall with the natural tides of the bay and uh, bay king tides and projected sea level rise. Hmm. Tides of the king the tides. King tides must be a special special type, type, of, type of, tide. of tide they get in San Francisco. Put a, put a footnote on that. Surprise, it's wanna... not a queen queen tide. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> the project did not involve any alterations to the historic fire station number thirty-five building, which is designated as San Francisco Landmark number two twenty-five, and is also a contributing resource to the Port of San Francisco Embarcadero National Reg- Register Historical District. 
The existing building constructed in 1915 for the Pan Pacific International Exposition will continue to house hmm. the Engine 35 and be used to store equipment. So they kind of moved it onto the water, but they still have the, the land-based building. There is no other floating fire station in the Western Hemisphere, and we believe that there's only one other in the world on the waters off of Tokyo. So it was a $50.5 million rebuild project. It was funded by the second phase of the Earthquake Safety and Emergency Response Bond. So yeah, I guess it's just like one of those floating floating houses <clears throat> by Oak Park or whatever yeah. where they have the pylons and yeah. it just goes up and down. Interesting. Well, Ernest Shackleton's lost ship, the Endurance, has been found in Antarctica after 107 years. One of the greatest maritime mysteries of modern times was solved when a team... By the way, before I get too far into that, that last story, the floating fire station story, is just copy and pasted from a press release. So speaking of state information, (laughs) I have read state information without double checking any of it. So... uh, (laughs) Let's get back to Ernest Shackleton. Sounds legit. Uh, the team of explorers said they had discovered the wreck of Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance, which disappeared in 1915. An international team of marine archaeologists and scientists located the wreck 3,000 meters under the Weddell Sea, approximately four miles south of the position originally recorded when Endurance sank. Videos show the ship, which was discovered on March 5, had been well-preserved in the freezing waters, with its name clearly visible. Visible across the stern. This is by far the finest wooden shipwreck I have ever seen, said Minson Bound, the explorer. Uh, Minson Bound. That's like the weatherman growing up in Los Angeles was Dallas Rains. And so, like, this is a little too on for an exploration director to be named Bound. I don't know about that. Um, it is upright, well proud in the sea, well proud of the seabed, intact and in a brilliant state of preservation. Well proud of well, the seabed. Well proud of the seabed. I don't know. Huh. Have you seen photos of it? Uh, I it's, saw just the one of the back where it says endurance on it, but I didn't see any of the other ones. There was one that looks like it was placed there <laughs> gently by the hand of God. Like, like yesterday? Yeah, with wow. ropes still you know, going up to the foxhole and you know, did the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating that just the cold water preserves it like that. Uh, the story of Ernest of uh, Shackleton endurance have gone down in Antarctic exploration legend. The Imperial trans Antarctic expedition was the first to attempt to cross the Antarctic continent by foot, but the endurance was caught and eventually crushed by sea ice. Uh, the exploration also conducted scientific research on the effects of climate change in 1915, including weather conditions of the Weddell sea and studies of sea ice thickness. How thick is that ice? So anyway. Oh, the picture that I saw was a picture of it in 1915. (laughs) (laughs) The picture that they showed in the press release was was this one. And it kind of looks like it's. Oh, yeah. It looks like a black. It's black and white and almost like a computer reading. Right. And so I'm like, wow, that's really amazing. And that's 1915. But where? Are those waves under it? It looks like it's on a mountain. It's on. It's uh, pushed into ice. It was. It's. Oh, in, okay. I I see. So that's the the ice. Oh, so those are waves up, with. Yeah. But it's, it's pushing its way through the ice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Boy, that so is that's little, why that is a little misleading. <laughs> All them ropes. <laughs> okay. Why don't you take the fireworks? <laughs> I'll warm myself up by this fight. Oh, Portland. Uh, Portland bans the sale and use of personal fireworks, as they should have a long time ago. The number of fires dropped dramatically in 2021 after the mayor signed an emergency declaration temporarily banning the sale of fireworks. Portland leaders agreed on Wednesday to ban the sale and use of personal fireworks as climate change increases the risk of deadly fire. Fireworks sales had previously been allowed for a two-week period from June 23rd through July 6th. Under the new ordinance, people would no longer be able to buy or use personal fireworks at any time in Portland. I wonder if that's just Multnomah County or if that's... I, it's the city of Portland. It's not even oh. Multnomah County. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so it's just the city of Portland. I remember when I first... You know, gr- we grew up in Southern California yeah. and... 
those fireworks were banned early in my childhood like yeah. when i was eight yeah you could still and, get like flowers and a tiny fountain or or the like glow stick <laughs> <laughs> like here's your firework kid and um and so i was without fireworks for the rest of my uh, childhood childhood until i moved to the pacific northwest and in vancouver at the time in the 90s <laughs> it was anything goes at all and mortars and it it was it was wild and so uh i remember walking down to the fourth of july celebration and it was a war zone of just everybody just that's one of my one of my first memories of portland uh when i was married we went to um it was like around the interstate bridge because they yeah. do the big one and wherever <clears throat> yeah. on government island or whatever that not government island whatever yeah just at the interstate bridge they they do the uh both coasts of washington coast and and the oregon coast of that uh columbia river right there celebrate and so they put a barge into the middle yeah. of the columbia river and shoot it off and so I would come down to the, on the Washington okay, side. Okay, and we came up on the Oregon side, yeah. and we had never done that before, and so, we, like, we got there late or whatever, and so, and we pulled off on one of the, it was the exit before Jansen Beach, um, and it kind of curves way off, and people, like, everyone just, it was like T2 Judgment Day, like, everybody just abandoned their cars yeah. in the middle of everything, and are lined up on these grassy knolls that are alongside but it's july and so all of the grass is dead and like waist high and people are like firing off roman candles and like throwing (laughs) things that like just emit sparks and screaming and yelling and you're exactly right is totally like a war zone and we were terrified to be there it was so crazy so people would get burned every year and everything and so so successively over that 30 year period it's been reduced and reduced and reduced and last year during covid they're like no fireworks at all for anyone and uh and that went well and yeah and so they're staying staying with it yeah all right why don't you take this next one too EpiPen makers agreed to pay 264 million dollar settlement in lawsuit over the price hikes is this uh what's his name the the guy that my husband loves Booted. No, the, I don't know how to answer the, that question. No, the, <laughs> uh, the the Skrilly, uh wasn't he? Oh part of the yeah, yeah, yeah. Martin Skrelly. I don't think he was EpiPen. I think he was diabetes of some sort. Oh. Maybe the proposed. Oh yeah, he was insulin. Maybe yeah. Yeah. Uh, the proposed settlement would end an ongoing lawsuit against Viatris, formerly Mylan, the makers of EpiPen that began in 2016 after the public outrage over the company's decision to raise the list price for a two-pack of EpiPens from $100 to $600. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit were made up of consumers, insurance companies, and other groups that said Viatris Inc. was unlawfully exercising its monopoly power by steeply raising the price of EpiPens and blocking out competition from generic versions of the medication pfizer which manufactures the epipens was also named in the lawsuit and agreed last year to a 345 million dollar settlement god bless america Uh, pfizer i barely knew her (laughs) nice Okay, well, a new book chronicles the industry-defying saga of movie madness. The book is called Movie Madness. 30 Years Behind the Counter at Portland's iconic video store shows uh, the store's evolution from hip local staple to cultural landmark. Chronicling, um, oh, that just repeats the same thing. It originated as a net for overflowing memories, reunion recollection, reunion recollections from outlandish customer interactions to looking up crushes rental histories became the book's oral history of the store. Other highlights of the 60 page zine style tribute include an essay by movie madness devotee uh, Todd Haynes, who is also director and a comprehensive conversation with Mike Clark. Isn't that, that can't be Mike Clark. I thought he was. Who am I? Th- who who did um, not everyday music? What's the other big music store record store in Portland? Oh, um, the famous one. Um, r- uh, <laughs> starts with an R. Everybody <laughs> hates us right now. <laughs> on Used to be Burnside. one on Burnside, but that's not there anymore. <laughs> no, the one on music- Burnside is there. Oh, is it Music Millennium? Music Millennium. 
Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now we're all second guessing ourselves. I guess Mike Clark is movie madness. Yeah. Um, Ter- and, Terry is Terry. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Terry Funk is not him. Terry Funk is a like crazy TV insurance man. Brian's yelling at us. In the, in, <laughs> We're single-handedly like dismantling weird Portland United <laughs> <laughs> relationships with everyone just by association. Uh, anyway, blah, blah, blah. In, her, in a chapter about managing the Hollywood's 2017 donor-driven campaign to acquire movie Madness, Hallett noticed that rentals and membership increased in 2018 and 19. While the pandemic certainly took its bite out of the business, they're encouraged by the 150 to 200 new signups a month since resuming full-time business hours last mm, nice. summer. So good for movie Madness. One more story. The Venus flytrap, <clears throat> which mine I don't think are going to survive the winter. Um, my pitcher plants are doing great, but my poor Venus flytraps sure look like they're made out of mush. So Aww. we'll see if maybe some of their root ball survive. Oh, our campfire went out. That should, I guess that'll be, that's a good indicator of like, have we been going on too long? <laughs> Even the fire has ceased to. Oh yeah. That concrete does get hot. Interesting. I'm going to go back and listen to our concrete episode. Um, So Swedish researchers have engineered an artificial neuron that can control the snapping of a living Venus flytrap, a new uh, development in the research for artificial synthetic devices with biological systems such as brain-machine interfaces like Musk's Neuralink or bionic prosthetics. We use the flytraps as a model system to demonstrate the bio-integration of our artificial neurons, said Simone Fabiano, the lead researcher author. While Venus flytraps and other plants don't have nerves like humans and other animals, they are able to generate electrical impulses called action potentials that our own neurons use to convey information to neural neighborhoods in the brain and spinal cord. To mimic that action potential, Fabiano and his team ran a current through the artificial neurons dendrite, which is the tree-like end of the nerve cell. That (laughs) The nerve cell. We are the tree-like end of a nerd cell doing our <laughs> podcast. Uh, the tree-like, the dendrite is the tree-like end of the nerve cell that acts as a receiving bay for incoming information. That current is transferred to a device that stores electrical charge called a capacitor and acts as the neuron cell body. The voltage starts building until it reaches a specific threshold, after which the voltage pulse is fired as an output signal, and that makes the flytrap trap. So aside from controlling the Venus flytrap snap, the artificial neuron also showed it capable of Hebbian learning, which is a widely accepted theory in neuroscience that information in a neural network is stored between neurons in the form of weights. Hmm. We'll have to do a deep dive <laughs> into that. I didn't Yeah, weights is the word that got me in that sentence. Greater stimulation leads to greater changes in weight and vice versa, resulting in stronger or weaker neural connection. So it is literally like bodybuilding, <clears throat> apparently. Blah, blah, blah. Um, yes, yeah, so they're studying that so they can mimic that in wow. if we're doing biometrics or something like a bionic hand or something like that to be able to control the, the fake synapses with our own brain thinking. Wow. <clears throat> wow. And that's that very very cool very cool mark um can we take a little bio break we can't he's gay i mean he's gay excuse me he's blind (laughs) (laughs) um so i was i was researching this topic and it took a really wild left turn. And so um, let's let's start from where I started and then we'll we'll explore this topic a little bit. Perfect. Uh, we talked before the show. I definitely recall very specifically watching the 1984 Olympic game opening ceremonies. Right. And, and uh, being from Southern California and 
It was uh, a huge deal. Sam the Olympic massive. Eagle. Yeah. Every piece of clothing had the logo on it and the cartoon guy. What do you remember about the opening? So I, I'll kind what of do a little highlights? bit. Of bef- so before the opening, I remember they had the torch relay and that went right past my elementary school. So I remember lining up parade like with thousands of people just alongside the road as some guy ran by carrying we, the torch. We did the same. We also had one person from our middle school selected to carry the torch for one and i was one of 15 people that was in a drawing to be on uh, to be the torch bearer and so i was that close whoa (laughs) but uh i i didn't (laughs) so so long story short cool guy did uh and so they had to run one kilometer and uh and so there was like a running competition that we did at school and everything and so the top 15 people from nice. that got, um keep going I'm yeah sorry. so i remember i remember doing that and i re- i do remember watching so i would have been 1984 i was <clears throat> nine years old i remember them running the torch up the big long stairs at the memorial coliseum and then lighting the big torch they didn't do it that wasn't the arrow that was a different year he ran up the tour and they stood there was just i I don't know (laughs) jesse jesse the body of injury (laughs) was it uh but i rewatched the broadcast and the and the the announcer did say this is the first black to light (laughs) the olympic flame Jesse Owens, I yeah. believe, the the yeah. famed the famed track and field star. Wow, <laughs> let's hear it for 1984. Yeah, totally. um, and then I remember, so I went to some of those Olympics there. I went, I I went to some of the track and field events at the Coliseum. But my mom and dad went to the opening ceremonies. And it's yes. funny, a couple times my mom has mentioned of the past <clears throat> couple of years about a regret of hers, which I've never heard her say regret before, but she's like, I really wish we would have taken you guys to the opening ceremonies. Mm. And huh. um, I'm fine with that mom. It's, I'm not traumatized <laughs> over that. But I, I, they brought home and we had for the longest time laying around the house, these little um, plastic or they weren't vinyl. They were like gross, the, I don't know, plastic little rectangles that were just solid colors and then everybody in the stadium would hold it up you know and make symbols or like a flag or whatever it was yeah and so there was one portion uh one one part of the event where everybody put up their card and it showed all of the flags of all of the nations competing in the Olympics. Oh, okay, okay, and so okay. That was the first time, and, and I remember watching. Like, how did they manage that? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, it's just math. It's just math. But, but yeah, so when we had it, was like an orange one and a white one. We had at the house, and it had the little logo on it. And do you remember any other of the events from you know? Uh, and so for me, there were like four things that stuck out. Okay. I remember those flags. I and remember my your memories might trigger mine because you're just enough you're what three years older than me so you would have been yeah yeah, 12 or 13 yeah exactly so um there were 84 grand pianos that played in Uh, harmony to uh the the grand overture uh music uh and there were these massive balloons that were released that then subsequently knocked out power to like 19 communities all the poor neighborhoods <laughs> totally. uh because <laughs> some of them were mylar and <laughs> and short circuited i remember that being a thing but uh the one moment that stuck out in my mind uh is is really right at the beginning of the ceremony. So. Okay. In the same arena that made history in 1932, the city of Los Angeles is again proud to be the host of the Olympic Games. To the visitors assembled here today, welcome to our city. To the great athletes from 140 nations who are competing in these Olympic Games, welcome to our country. And to the viewing audience of two and one-half billion that stretches around the world, a warm welcome from the citizens of California. Well, there he is. Jetpack, yes. I'm like trembling in my seat waiting for that to... No tricks. It's just as you see it. His belt will turn 30 pounds of fuel in 20 seconds. Bill Suter of Youngstown, New York. Oh, 38-year-old rocket man. 
So they called him Rocketman. I do. And as as that was starting to play, I'm like, was there something about space or a UFO? And then halfway through it, I was like, Jetpack guy. Like the iconic symbol of the 80s was Jetpack guy. It really was. And so we're going to talk about those Jetpacks today. Nice. And uh, first of all, when uh, you talk to any of the Jetpack guys, uh, and there were basically, there's two that were uh, kind of, the test pilots um they always correct you very quickly uh they weren't jets uh they were rockets and so they were officially called a rocket belt and um the mechanism of uh you know and we'll we'll get into how they are powered like we already did theory versus law i need a jet versus rocket yeah so a a jet is uh, compressed air uh, fed with fuel that expands and is a jet engine, uh, and it includes a turbine. Oh, okay. Uh, a rocket is compressed gas uh, that is exploding for one reason or another, <laughs> and uh, and so like the rockets, the solid booster rockets of the space shuttle were literally. Uh, uh, well, they were a fuel that was exploding and creating uh, thrust. thrust. Okay. And so these were powered by hydrogen peroxide. Uh, and so basically, if you take hydrogen peroxide and introduce it to a uh, material that causes it to have an exothermic reaction and it uh, erupts into both water, H2O, and uh, oxygen O2. And so it quickly um, gives off that gas. And and so what they would what they had was six gallons of propellant, uh, which was really highly concentrated hydrogen peroxide. And they had one tank of nitrogen gas. And his throttles are just taking the nitrogen, pushing it onto the uh, hydrogen peroxide, which pushed it into that uh, material that caused it to separate. And then they would take that resultant pressure uh, and shoot it out nozzles. And then they, the only moving parts were the governor of uh, that was introducing that nitrogen. And then they had vectors uh, vectorizing um, nozzles on the output. You know, they yeah. had two jets that went down to his side, and those nozzles allowed him to control the tilt forward and back. And then he could lean left or right okay. to introduce left or right movement. So was was there flame coming out of those? No flames. It, it's it's uh, oxygen and. Uh, water vapor or the only outlets. Yeah. Because in my head, of course, there's flames coming out of those. No flames. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, here, you want to watch it again? I've got that, got it queued up on my side. This inherently visual medium that we (laughs) (laughs) introduced this into. Well, there he is. Get man. Flying into the stadium, no wires, no That strings. does look so magical. Just as you see it. His belt will turn 30 pounds of fuel in 20 seconds. Bill Souter of Youngstown, New York. Wow. <laughs> also in my head, he came flying in from outside yeah. of the Coliseum. He, but he, came he was from right below the area t- where, where the, the torch, torch was. was. And he flew over the the main field and landed. And so that was, but there's I think, yeah, like nothing even coming long. out. There wasn't vapor. There wasn't steam, no, anything coming out of yeah. that. And oh, so weird. it's, uh, they have a limit of 21 and a half second flight time on the, uh, the bell rocket belt. And, um, so the, the history of the rocket belt it was uh, initially conceived in the 1950s as a concept of like, we think we can do this. And Bell Aerosystems took it on as a contract, a $100,000 contract from the government and said, 
you build this thing, right? And so they they had the idea and they they did all the things. And uh, within about six years, they had a uh, testable rocket uh, belt. And so in 1961, let me open up my thing. In uh, the first military test in 1961 uh, were interesting, but they fell flat because it only had a 21 and a half second uh, range. Right. And they couldn't get more fuel in, you know, it already yeah. weighed 125 pounds as a, as a pack. Yeah. Uh, it had this really uh, lightweight fiberglass girdle holding holding out the uh, a corset is what they call it okay uh, fiberglass corset holding it in and three tanks two of fuel one of nitrogen and all of the interconnecting tubing and that that's the entire thing a couple of gauges so uh and then he's got a wire that goes up into his helmet and starting at halfway through the flight it beeps uh at him giving a buzzer and a vibration to the back of his head saying you you have 13 seconds left <laughs> you have 13 uh, seconds you, to you, live you pretty much have to land now and um and so there were kind of two test pilots they did a bunch of stuff uh there's only two of those rocket packs made by bell that um were ever made uh, oh, wow. because the military looked at it a bunch of times and they're just like there's no use case there's for this. no use case for this right now in the state that it is because it, it can't get more than about 100 meters yeah. and that just doesn't get us what we need and so we're going to instead spend all of our money on uh ballistic rock yeah. <laughs> ballistic missiles and and all the it would have uh, been off things. it would have been awesome like in the times where we just needed to like get into a castle <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. That's like the perfect use case for jetpack. Precisely. Uh, and so they, uh, in, in 61, they did the first uh, test. And it actually happened one week after Yuri Gagarin's flight into space. So the first person goes into space. The next week, the first person takes off on a jetpack. Wow. Uh, on, on a, what a futuristic uh, a, week. A rocket belt, sorry. Um, <laughs> and then... In uh, October 1961, it was demonstrated personally to President JFK in the course of experimental maneuvers on the military base of Fort Bragg. Um, and then in 1962, the pack was publicly demonstrated for the first time before several hundred officers at Fort U uh, Eustis military base. And then they did this world tour where they went to different countries and, and everything, and they were trying to kind of drum up support for this. And so this was 1962. Wow. And then it was shown in 1965 movie Thunderball, which is a James Bond movie. Oh, yeah. And so... So this is that same guy that wow. was at the Olympics. It looks so silly in the James Bond movie. I mean, it looks silly in real life, too, but... <laughs> and that's wow. it. That's the entire thing. And so it generates about 130 decibels of noise, which is a uh, the same as a jackhammer. So uh, it's incredibly loud, incredibly impractical, and... Um, and and so the military abandoned it. And there's one in the Smithsonian. There's one at a at some air. I've probably air seen Force it then in the yeah. Smithsonian. So then I was gonna say that is normal topic. That's now normal I'm, topic. Now I'm and so waiting then, for the. So then, uh, 1984, it's demonstrated, and there's one guy who is kind of. He was one of the original test pilots, and he just starts kind of making them. And he's got one that he uses for demonstration purposes. And so that's the one at 1984 at the Olympics. And he does uh, a couple other events. And he's making like $25,000 per event. And uh, along comes Brad Barker. Brad <laughs> Barker says, 
this is my million dollar making idea. I am going to start a company, build rocket belts, and I'm going to become a millionaire. So he's he lives in Texas. He has a friend who owns an oil well, and they become business partners to start this company. And the company is called the American Rocket Belt Corp. <laughs> and so Larry Stanley is the financier and Brad is the brains behind the thing, right? And so he's going to do the work. And then they they also bring in a buddy, Joe Wright. And Joe, he owned a car audio plus store and uh, they used the shop in this car audio plus store to build the thing and they gave him a little office and so uh, Joe got five percent of the company to provide an office space and a shop to do this work in okay, okay? and so by 1995 so they they formed in 92 three years later about $100,000 of investment put in by Larry. Uh, they build the RB2000, the Rocket Belt 2000, and they have liftoff. And the, and, and the same guy uh, who, I can't think of his name right now, uh, he's, he's like the godfather of- Johnny Jetpack. Uh, of Johnny Jetpack of uh, Rocket Belts. His name is Bill Suter. Bill Suter is the name that always comes up when you- look at rocket packs he's always the guy in the in the videos right and so he was the guy at the 84 olympics and and whatever else he does he gets hired by uh rocket belt uh corp american rocket belt corp and he does the demonstration tests and he he certifies he's like this is the best rocket pack that has existed i've flown the other two <laughs> and this one's better than that one okay so um they build it they demonstrate it things are about to take off so what what year are we in 95 okay so 95 well it turns out that car audio plus wasn't doing so well and uh, joe's business is failing and he gets addicted to meth oh. <laughs> so so joe is having issues <laughs> so we get that get that guy a jetpack immediately <laughs> so larry uh larry is the financier and brad is the Pilot. Uh, the idea guy okay and so brad is stealing from larry he's producing <laughs> invoices that are in excess of actual thing and so he he is is having his financier pay for more than what actually exists and he's mooching off of his financier uh, so Larry, the financier, uh, calls him out on this. They get into a fist fight. <laughs> Brad, he goes, Stanley got in my face. So I grabbed a five pound dead blow, <sighs> lead filled hammer off the table. And I hit Stanley short <gasps> blows twice to the head, uh, to the back of his head. And that pretty much ended the partnership. So they, there's <laughs> photos of... And his life? <laughs> no, he, he lives. Jeez. So Larry lives and has injuries. And Brad gets convicted of assault and is put on probation. Okay? So this is 95. <laughs> um, at the dis dissolution of the partnership, the belt disappears the rocket belt disappears so larry the financier has paid for everything he's now been attacked Le uh, brad supposedly steals the belt and goes into hiding <laughs> okay so the belt disappears and brad has never uh disclosed the location whatever um so but soon afterwards, in June of 1995, the that belt, the RB2000, surfaced at a celebration for the Houston Rockets victory <laughs> in the year's NBA championships, where Barker was visible on television coverage, and Stanley learned that Wright, the, the guy on meth, was there as well. So, oh. so Larry has paid for everything. He got assaulted. 
now uh, the belt has disappeared. The uh, there was a court judgment saying um, he Larry took him to to court and said, "Okay, you own all of this. You need to receive uh, the belt back and ten million dollars from uh, your former business partner yeah. in uh, in restitution." Belts disappeared, shows up on television. It goes back into hiding. And uh, and this this guy, Brad, disappears again. Okay. Jeez. Um, soon after. Uh, so Joe, the guy on meth, owns the thing. Just before the next court case where uh, where more of this is going to be uh, brought out. He disappears and ends up being found dead at his house, uh, pummeled to death. Which guy is this? He, meth guy? The meth guy okay. that owns the auto place. Yeah. His body is beaten so badly that they have to use dental records to identify it. Jeez. Okay. His murder to this day is not uh, solved. Okay, Whoa. so we have Larry. So if you have, have any Brad. information, contact the FBI right now. So Larry, the financier, and Brad both have, uh, you know, motive of some sort in in yeah. you know either like Brad covering like, hey, don't go to Larry. Larry, like, I need this back. So so there's multiple uh, possible uh, possible people. So he's found dead. Uh, Brad is interrogated, or he's he's released. Sorry, he is arrested, interrogated, and released after three days. Claims to not have the belt, and uh, and the police don't have any hard evidence against him other than motive, but right. nothing else. So out of the blue, Brad gets a call from an old skydiving buddy in Hollywood and is invited him to a meeting in North Hollywood to discuss this project that's going to pay him $400 a day to do this stunt gig, right? He gets there and is put up. Uh, he's, he's taken hostage <laughs> and held at gunpoint, put into a box for seven days, and they what? want to know where the belt is. What? They they get to the point where they nail the box shut, they put holes in it, and they're talking about throwing it into the ocean what? to to uh, to drown him alive. <laughs> and um, right before they do that, they take him out of the box. They take off his blindfold. And Larry, the financier, is there holding a gun to his head and says, a a notary is on the way here right now. Mark Middleton shows up in the middle. <laughs> uh, somebody Hi. call for a rotary? <laughs> a, notary, a notary is coming here right now. Uh, we will let you live if you sign the papers over. Give me the belt and this will all be done. Right. And he knows he's like. As soon as I tell him, he will kill me because why? I, why? Yeah, he, he has nothing else to hold over me or you yeah, know, no yeah. other reason for me to live. And so he will kill me. And so to this day, he has not uh, divulged anything. He didn't sign the papers because he was able to escape while they weren't <laughs> looking. They he escaped. He had a jetpack on underneath <laughs> his jacket, <laughs> Boba Fett style, just so so uh brad escapes he runs two miles gets to a phone calls his brother gets the fbi involved oh and my god larry and the skydiving buddy were convicted uh of kidnapping and uh sentenced to life in prison was <laughs> then reduced to eight years okay whoa and um yeah, in 2002, he was sentenced to life in prison 
has since been reduced to eight years. I did not so see to this day being nailed into a box and thrown into the sea totally. being part of this story. So to this day, the belt is not recovered. Brad still has his mom. His mom. He's like, he uh, never says, what? I don't what have the back? belt. Oh, okay. He, he's like, um, I'm not answering that question. And even to Chris Cuomo <laughs> at 2002 interview, he's like, why do you keep asking me that? I've answered as much as I'm going to answer it. And, and wow, uh, that's, that's all you're getting from me. And, uh, and so there's been no other rocket pack from that format. There's, there's, there's jet packs that use those new, uh, jet engine things that you see the yeah, government yeah. You, using. So there's, and I was planning on like going deeper into that <laughs> and finding out like where the technology is leading to and everything. But, but this, when life hands what? you man trapped in a box for stealing jetpack from the American Ro- rocket belt corp and the, the three people where one is bludgeoned to death <laughs> One was beaten with a hammer. The other person was put into a box for seven days. Uh, and that's and like Tiger kept... King level of I didn't expect this backstory for this industry. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and so there were no other RB 2000s builds. Wow. And it remains uh, kind of dead in the water. Wow. That is crazy. Yeah. Uh, there's some great, like, 2000 uh 2000 2002 uh abc news and nbc news both had like wait till you hear this story yeah 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 (laughs) coming up Uh, on dateline exactly it was on dateline so wow i wonder they must those rocket packs must be still wildly difficult to make because else if it's just hydrogen peroxide which is widely available yeah you'd think there would just be every every hobbyist would have one the big problem there they say is that the body in that whole contraption is wildly unstable (laughs) and so there's been my body is always wildly (laughs) unstable (laughs) there's been a total of 12 people who have visited the moon there's been 11 people who have uh been successful at non-tethered uh uh, driving of the uh, wow. the Bell uh, rocket belt. Because like when you watch that Olympic flight, it is like on point and he's precision. On point. And that's and the just, guy, That's the one guy who's he's master who has no knowledge of the where the existence <laughs> of the jet jet belt is. Probably not. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so um, yeah, if you if you know where the rocket belt is. <laughs> Uh, let us know info at mark and toddcast.com <laughs> that's amazing i thought for a while because when i first came in you were excitedly telling t- uh, asking me questions about the 84 olympics and listening to some stuff and i thought you were going to go off on a john williams composer thing because he wrote that thing fa- and i think we still use that music till today and that it originated for that 1984 olympics so i did uh, you overheard me looking up information about that. So the oh, okay. So um, the um, kind of he wrote the fanfare, the fanfare, the Olympic fanfare and theme, which took upon the previous work, which um, in 1968 ABC began airing the Olympic theme song that opens up each telecast. Mm. And so that Olympic theme song was then expanded oh, okay. uh, upon. And so the, the original sound like this, yeah. very classic. And then uh, John Williams version included a lot more. Uh, John, yeah. 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 Included John Williams. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> oh, here's a uh, the closing ceremonies of the 1984 Olympics did have a UFO in it. Close encounter. It was like a close encounters thing, where <laughs> there was some big. Let's see if I can. Oh, this is nine minutes long, but yeah, they oh, right. it must have been on a blimp or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, then it landed like in the stadium or whatever. So there was, wow, it was all about. So fan, so fanfare. It was. Yeah. I just that Sam the Eagle mascot just on every, we had one of those 
like remember the paper painters cap things that were like super yep. popular in the eighties for some reason, those with Sam, the Olympic Eagle on it. And <laughs> wow. What a story. That's so crazy. The rocket belt, the rocket belt. Yeah. Don't call it a jetpack. Don't call it a comeback and don't call it a jetpack. <laughs> From where? where? <laughs> All right. Where, where are my LL Cool J fans at? Um, <laughs> well, thank you for telling that story, Mark. Yeah. And thank you for everyone for joining us. We can be heard on the Fun Employment uh, Radio Network. Oh, last week we put out our Portland at the Movies episode that guest starred Aaron Duran from Geek in the City. It was about the movie Bandits. And uh, Aaron told a bunch of behind the scenes story because he worked uh, he worked on the production and saw many of things, some of which he could tell on the air. <laughs> so go check that out. It's a great episode. Mark, do you want to uh, go out with that Olympic theme or the theme to the Rocketeer? Uh, yeah, I Want to do Rocketeer? Rocketeer. Let's get let's which get I this thought maybe down by Disney, which, <laughs> uh, which I thought would maybe be John Williams and bring it off full circle. But it is James Horner uh, who did the music for uh, Aliens and Terminator 2 and Titanic. So um, thank you all for listening. We will see you later. It was less, less rockety than I was in, perhaps. Get to the middle of the song here. Maybe it gets a little. It's flying through the clouds now. Wow, I can really hear Titanic-y notes in here. All right, let's give three quarters of the end here. Like a little percussive. Anticipatory. (laughs) All right. Well, that's all right, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.